If you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to turn to John chapter 13. We have now officially reached the second half of John's Gospel, having finished chapter 12, and we're now in John 13. And this chapter begins what is often called the Upper Room Discourse of our Lord. It is when our Lord leaves His public ministry and comes and sets aside private time in His last day for His disciples. The text we're going to be looking at this morning is a familiar story of our Lord's great service and servanthood to His people. We'll be looking at chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would open up your word to us. That you would 
Show us the Lord Jesus Christ in all of His majesty and glory. That You would show us our great need of Christ. Lord, we thank You that You have given to us this account, a reminder to us of how much our Lord loves us. Please be with us and open our eyes that we might see Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I've said this to you several times. There is a transition in the Gospel of John in about the middle of the 12th, 13th chapter in which Jesus is now officially leaving His public ministry. He has spent years preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom, healing the sick, performing signs and wonders that show that He is God. And now, in these next few chapters, from chapter 13 to chapter 17, we are brought to a slowness of time. Time almost stops in the upper room as Jesus gathers with His disciples for this Last Supper and He begins to teach them about Himself, about service, about the truth, about the Holy Spirit, and about salvation in greater depth. And because John is inspired by the Holy Spirit and because God Himself wants you and me to know this, this has all been recorded for us. We are entering onto holy ground. Many theologians talk about this last set of chapters from chapter 13 on as being patterned after the temple in the sense that we begin by coming into the holy ground of the temple courts. And then as Jesus continues to speak to his disciples, we are brought into the holy place. And then as we come to the cross, we're brought into the holy of holies, where atonement is made and redemption is found. Jesus is using this time with his disciples for what will come, his death. And he's also using it for what they will do. They will build, their, build his church. And so John records all of this in great detail for us. We need to hear what Jesus says and see what he does. Today we see a great act of servanthood by Jesus. It is an act designed to teach us, first, Jesus' love. Second, Jesus' sacrifice. And third, Jesus' example. Jesus' love, sacrifice, and example. Let's begin then by looking at Jesus' love. We see this right away in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. John is showing us with clarity the love of Jesus. Jesus' love is an intentional love. And so first he sets the time for us. It was the Passover season, John tells us. The Passover was the feast that celebrated the deliverance of God's people. It was a reminder of the story of God's people in bondage and slavery experiencing misery and death, and then through a miraculous deliverance, a sacrifice, God's people were redeemed, bought out of bondage, 
and taken to a place of plenty and joy where they might worship the Lord. Well, Jesus knew more about this story than anyone. Because you see, the Jews are coming now to recount that old story, and that old story is merely a recounting of what Jesus will do for his people in just a few days. It's a reminder to us that Jesus knew what it meant Every time every lamb had its throat cut and the blood was poured out and smeared on the doorposts. He knew what that symbolized. He knew what was required. He knew that for sin to be forgiven, his sacrifice was necessary. And so it's not just the time of the feast that gives us this. It is a context of time John tells us that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Now, how many times have we heard the opposite of this in this gospel? Jesus' time had not come. They tried to capture him, but they could not. Why? Because his time had not come. Jesus told someone not to say anything because his time had not come. Well, now Jesus knows that his time has come. Now, don't read that phrase... (laughs) So quickly, his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. If you read that too quickly, it sounds like Jesus is returning from a business trip. Or he's simply getting back home where he can be comfortable, where he can be with the Father and with the Spirit and relationships. But what is buried in that short, compact phrase is that Jesus knew he would have to suffer and die. And not just suffer physical sufferings but that he would have to bear the weight of all the sin of all his people. That he would be separated judicially from the Father, the one with whom he had spent blessed union from before time began. And he was willing to do it for love. It was not merely a purpose, Not merely a promise, although it was both those things. It was because of Jesus' love for his people that he endured the cross. You see, the focus here that John wants us to see is on those who belong to Jesus. Having loved his own. This is a very specific Greek word. It means a private possession. It specifically refers to to a people that belong to Jesus. And so we might ask, how did this people become Jesus' own? Well, I think first we've seen in this gospel that the Father had given them to Jesus. Jesus recounts that in chapter 6, verse 37. And then he reiterates this in chapter 10. He says, my Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. John 17 is filled with this kind of talk. We'll get to it in a few months. It's filled with the talk of the Father giving a people to the Son. But it's not just the Father giving a people to the Son. The Gospel also tells us that Jesus chose them. Each and every one of them. Now, just think about everyone who came to Jesus. Think about Matthew, for example. 
He's just biding his time, sitting at a desk, robbing the Jews by taxation, making sure he's got all of his money, and Jesus walks by and says, follow me. And Matthew surprisingly does what I think no IRS agent worth his salt would ever do. He leaves everything behind, and he follows Jesus. It's not as if Matthew was seeking out a teacher or someone who had wisdom. Jesus calls him, and he follows. Think about Andrew. Before Andrew can even say anything to Jesus, Jesus looks at him and he says, What are you seeking? Come and see. And Andrew follows him. Think about James, John, and Peter. They're busy fishing. And Jesus says, Come and from now on I will make you fishers of men. Jesus will reiterate this directly in in the 15th chapter of our gospel. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So they are given by the Father. They are chosen by the Son. But this is yet again another text that reminds us of the truth of the Trinity because the people of Jesus are also born again through the work of the Spirit. John tells us in chapter 6, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And that famous verse, John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus is telling those who trust in Him, who believe in Him, that is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. So here we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all working together, unified as the Trinity in the work of salvation so that the Savior would have a people that He would love. But it's not because that people is worthy of love. Think about who the disciples are. They're confused. They're powerless. They're ineffective. Now, parents, imagine you have children that are five or six years old for about a decade or two. And your whole life is made up with, why did he do that? What does that mean? Where are we going? Teach me about this. I forgot what you said. Repeat it. That's Jesus' life with the disciples. Think about how many times... Jesus plainly teaches them, and it seems like five minutes later they say, what are we doing? And he patiently teaches them again. It's not like these are the brightest bulbs in all of Israel. It's not like they're the most powerful men in all of the kingdom. No. But more than that, from this point now, where John tells us he loved them, in mere hours they will abandon him. They will forsake him. Just a short time from now. Now, we tend to focus on Peter. Warming himself by the fire. Denying Christ three times and the rooster crows. But you have to remember, all of the others weren't even as close as Peter was. They had fled further away. They didn't get a chance to deny him because they had hightailed it out of the area. The temptation for us is to view ourselves as being worthy to Jesus. 
Now, I understand we'll say, yes, we have rough edges. Yes, we need some grace. Yes, we need help from Jesus. But especially when we begin comparing ourselves to other people, we say, look, Jesus needs us. How's the gospel going to go forward without us? How's the kingdom going to be built without us? How's the church going to be the church without us? It's not like we're like those people over there, those criminals. It's not like we're going to be like those Muslims. It's not like we're going to be those atheists. We're not so bad when you put us up against others. But what we have to understand is, is that we don't have merit because we're slightly better than others, even if we are. We're the opposite. We're completely unworthy. We are not worthy of any sacrifice or love that Jesus brings. But his love is intentional. His love is not only intentional, it's also effective. This is a love that comes from the beginning. If we go all the way back to the first chapter of John's Gospel, we see in the incarnation an echo of going all the way back to the first chapter of Genesis. And that is a reminder to us that the love of Christ is not temporal. It's not something that has a beginning and an end. You know, there's a well-known quote that says, Jesus can never stop loving you. He never started. That's because his love for you is before time. It's into eternity. His purpose is eternal. It has no beginning and it has no end. And Jesus came to make an eternal bond of love with his people, to draw them into communion with him. Do you realize that Jesus' love for you is bigger than your life, bigger than your actions? Jesus' love is not bound by your circumstances or by your events. His love draws you to him in an eternal bond. It is like the bond of love within the persons of God himself. Jesus' love is shown not just from the beginning, but during his discipling of his disciples. Jesus spent three years with them, teaching them, helping them, leading them. He put up with their questions. He put up with their mistakes. He even put up with their objections. Think about Peter's rebuke of Jesus. Oh Lord, you'll never die. Think about James and John saying, we're going to call down fire from heaven if people don't get on our team. Soon, we miss this here. We have to understand the account with all of the Gospels. What is happening right now, perhaps even just shortly before our text, at the Last Supper, when Jesus is facing death and the cross, and right before he will come and serve them in this humble way, they are sitting around arguing about who is the greatest. Now, let me just give you an earthly analogy. Let's say you're home, mom and dad, after a long week at work. And you come home and a, a wonderful dinner is spread out. You've made a wonderful dinner. The table is all set. Everyone has more than enough to eat. There's even a great dessert afterwards, including chocolate. And that happens. And the, the table is cleared and all the work is done. And the kids are sitting around the table saying, you know what? 
I think I'm the most valuable member of this family. And the other one says, are you kidding me? I helped mom clean for five minutes last week. What did you do? And the other one says, well, you know, I'm the one that works hardest at school. So I think I'm the one that's most important. And they're arguing about who's the most important. And what you want to do is pull your hair out and say, folks, get with the program. You're not even adults yet. And that's kind of like what's going on here. Jesus is going to rectify that through his humble service. Remember that as we go through this, that, that the ones who receive this service are arguing about who's the greatest. Jesus loves them, John reminds us, to the end. Now this is a wonderful phrase. It's a phrase that has more than one meaning. It can mean perfectly or accomplished. That Jesus had accomplished perfectly his love for them in his work on the cross and his salvation. Or it could also refer to time. That Jesus loved them to the end of his life. Or perhaps the end of their lives. That he was with them even after his resurrection. That all throughout their work building the church, Jesus loved them. But I think there's a third meaning here that is most helpful. To the end can also mean toward a purpose. That is to glory itself. That Jesus loved them without ever stopping or failing. You can rely on Jesus' love. There is no end to it. The end is his purpose. To make you his own and to bless you beyond all measure. Could anything else be worth rejecting that kind of love? Cars rust. Money is lost. Fame is forgotten. But the love of Christ lasts forever. The second thing that we see here is Jesus' sacrifice. Now, we have to understand what is going on here. What, why is this event happening? In Jesus' day, none of the roads were paved. Now, I don't know if any of you have taken a time walking down an unpaved road, but you will notice that it's dusty and it's dirty and it gets on you. But when we do that, we do that with socks and a pair of boots or a sturdy pair of athletic shoes, and then when we stop, we take those shoes and socks off, and we're still clean. The dirt goes off with them. That's not what happened in Jesus' day. Not only were all of the roads dirty and dusty, but people walked either barefoot or with open sandals. And so it was impossible to go from one place to the other and not get your feet dirty, filthy, messy. And so at a meal, guests would come and would recline on a couch with all apologies to da Vinci. His painting is blatantly wrong. They were not sitting around a table all facing in one direction. They were reclining on a couch toward the food, speaking to one another with their feet pointed out. So you could understand why someone would want not messy, dirty, smelly feet around the food. And so the host would... Just as we do when someone visits our home for dinner and say, would you like to freshen up? Here's the restroom. 
so they could wash your hands or your face. The host would provide someone to wash their feet so they could take their shoes off and wash their feet. But you have to understand this was a task for the lowest of slaves. There was actually a law, not in the Old Testament, but from the rabbis, that a Jewish man, even if he were a slave, could not be required to wash feet. It was a limitation on a master's authority. It was only something a child or a woman could do, or most often a Gentile servant, the lowest of the low. So it's not as if the host does it, or his helper does it, or his slave does it. It's the lowest of the low. That's what we have to see. Now, in Jesus, we see his attitude of sacrifice and service. He comes into the room with his disciples, we imagine, and picture in your mind's eye that the basin and the towel and the water are sitting in a corner of the room. And you can just imagine the disciples are looking around. They're not seeing any Gentile slaves. And the the basin and the towel are over there, and they say, oh, I need to have a conversation with him way over there. I'm going to get as far away from those implements as possible. Have you ever had that in your home? A child who tries to avoid a task by not being found? You know, you have a meal, and the meal is great, but there's a mess, and dishes need to be cleaned and washed and whatever, and everybody looks around and says, where's Johnny? I don't know. Where's Johnny? Is he in his room? No, he's not in his room. Ping his cell phone. No, he's not answering. Is he in the restroom? Knock on the door. Where's Johnny? And lo and behold, when the dishwasher is turned on and the job is done, guess who shows up? Johnny. Oh, I missed it. I can't believe it. That's what they're all doing. You have to picture this. They know this is not something new. This is not unfamiliar territory. No one is volunteering for this. But Jesus, John tells us, rises from the spot of preeminence. He's in the most prominent place at the feast. He is the one who gets up. And he girds himself, the old King James says. He prepares himself to wash their feet. Now what you have to understand is he's taking off his outer garment, his robes. And he's very likely, because of the dirty, wet work that it is, he's very likely bare from the waist up. And he's wearing a very minimal amount of clothing with a huge towel wrapped around his waist with feet of it to extend to do this. And he's very likely going from person to person on his knees, washing their feet. So don't get the idea that Jesus gets up from the meal in his tuxedo and gets a spray hose and sprays them down and sits down. This service is as menial as it gets. Imagine what his disciples were thinking. And don't miss this. In verse 2. Jesus also washed Judas' feet. Now, we can't be too critical of Peter here. Peter's trying to respect his Lord and Master. Peter is trying to find the answer. And so Peter says to Jesus, you know, we're trying to understand what's going on here. What is happening? Is Jesus just trying to teach us about humility? Is he just trying to give us an example? 
Have you ever had a conversation where you don't know the substance of the conversation, but you're afraid to ask and be found out? It's where someone's talking about an event or a product or something, and they're going on and on about things, but not in great detail. And you stand there and you give that kind of, oh, yeah, sure, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, that, that, that's interesting. But you don't know? Well, thankfully, we have Peter. Because Peter asks the question so that we know exactly what Jesus is doing here. In typical Peter fashion, Peter says to Jesus in very stark language, In the original, it is, Lord, you my feet to wash? You? My feet? Surely not. But again, we can't be too critical of Peter. Peter does often speak without thinking. But he's trying to respect his Lord and Master. And Jesus responds to him in verse 7. What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Now, this response is crucial. Peter will understand later after the cross. That's because what Jesus is doing here is giving a picture of what he will do. That Jesus will humble himself completely and utterly in the cross. And then, you would think, Peter would just let it lay there. You know, when someone says to you, you don't understand this, but you will later, the proper response might be, thank you. Instead, as he always does, Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. You know Peter, he's always sitting on the fence, wishy-washy, not sure what what he's thinking, right? Never wash my feet, Lord. And then Jesus responds and says, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. That's the pointer to the cross. If Peter is to have a share, really an inheritance, that word is, in Christ, he has to accept this humbling work. Unless Peter is washed by the blood of Christ, he will not enter heaven. He will not be with Jesus. And so do you see the need here? Peter has to admit his need. If Peter was not willing to accept this partial humiliation of the foot washing, how could he accept the full humiliation of the cross? Now, we can criticize Peter here. But often, we have the same thought. So many people hear the gospel and say, You cleanse my sins? Never. I don't need that. I can handle it on my own. Do you see your utter need of the cleansing blood of Christ? That without his death on the cross, you have no hope, no share in him. There is no other way to have a part with Christ except to give up on your own efforts and to accept his cleansing. But there is also a continuing effect of this sacrifice. There is a context of Jesus' work. And we see this in verse 9. Peter says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. If I need to be washed, do the whole nine yards, Lord. Dump the bucket over me. I want all the washing I can get. 
And again, we benefit from Peter's talk first, think second mentality. Because Jesus responds with an important principle in verse 10. The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. You see, Jesus is saying that the cleansing that we need is once and for all. That is it. His work on the cross is sufficient. There is nothing additional to be added, either by us or by anyone else. His shed blood on the cross paid all the debt of sin. Not some of the debt of sin, not most of the debt of sin, but all of the debt of sin. And that means that in Christ, God sees you as forgiven. You don't have to fear your past. You don't have to worry about what might happen in the future. Jesus saves completely. Once you have confessed your sins and believed in Jesus, His work is finished. But there is a continuing need for Jesus and His grace. And that's because the Bible tells us that when we are saved, we are also still in the world. John reminded us of that in verse 1. He loved those of His own who were in the world. When we're saved, we're not immediately transported to heaven. And that means we're surrounded by sin and temptation. We're not made perfect yet. That will come in glory. We still fall short of God's standard. And this is important for us to remember. Not so that we get complacent with sin, but so that we realize we will still sin. You should not doubt your salvation with each and every sin you commit. Jesus is giving us a picture of that here, of walking around town and getting dirty feet. Now, stay with the picture. Jesus says you have to return to him for the washing of feet. We have to daily come to Christ, not because we need to be fully bathed, not because we are not saved, but because we always need him. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts. That's why John says in his first letter, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, Jesus is telling you today that even in salvation, you always have need of him. You never can get beyond Jesus. You are never not dependent on Jesus. That doesn't mean you need to be saved and unsaved and resaved and unsaved and re-resaved. It means that you always have to look to Jesus. He's the one that's going to love you to the end. He's the one that's going to carry you through to the end. There's a third thing that we see here. We see Jesus' example. Now we might ask ourselves, why did Jesus choose this act. I don't think it's because he was choosing a ritual to give us to repeat. This is not something that we should gather together once a year and in an artificial, formal, unreal way, wash each other's feet and congratulate ourselves with how proud we are of our humility. What Jesus is doing here is he's setting an example for us to follow of attitude and action. 
We see this in Jesus' attitude of humility. He was not concerned that this might be beneath him. He served. He certainly could have made himself the focus at this meal. He's about to redeem the church of Christ. He's about to sacrifice himself to satisfy divine justice. He could have said instead, who's going to volunteer first to wash my feet? Come on. Who will serve me? But that's not what Jesus does. Instead, he's the servant of all. And and we need to remember this, especially in a world where people demand their rights. Especially in America. We are very fond of declaring what we deserve. We have a right not to be persecuted. We have a right to free speech. We have a right to fair service. We have a right to equality. We have a right to justice. And when we don't get it, y'all better listen to me and do what I say. That's the American way, isn't it? But you see, what Jesus says to us is as followers of Christ, we don't stand on our rights. That doesn't mean we don't have rights as created beings in the image of God. That doesn't mean we don't have rights as followers of Jesus. But we serve. We don't demand. We don't rule. And look at the focus that Jesus has here. Who is he focusing on in these last hours of his life? What would you do if I told you with a certainty you would be dead in 18 hours? I think... Some of us would say, well, I've got a whole bucket list of things I've got to do. I've got to get out and get after it. I've got to experience things I haven't experienced before. I'm going to do my favorite things. I'm going to do only things I like. I'm going to listen to only the music I want to listen to. I don't care what you want. I'm going to watch only the things that I want to watch. I don't care what you want. I've only got 18 hours left. But Jesus' focus here is all on them. He's the one going to the cross. And he has an urgency for their benefit. For their blessing. Do we have that kind of gospel urgency in our lives? Do we have that kind of gospel urgency in this church? That we seek to serve others. That we focus on others rather than ourselves. Remember that this action is a reminder of Jesus' sacrificial work on the cross. Jesus didn't think about the worthiness of his disciples. He loved them in spite of their unworthiness. And this might be one of the hardest things for us. It's hard to serve someone who so obviously doesn't deserve it. And it would be easy to just abandon a wicked and selfish world form an enclave and to shut the world out and let it go literally to hell without us. But that's not what Jesus does. Examine your life. When do you take opportunities to serve? If you know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, your sins are forgiven and you are loved. You belong to Jesus. And to belong to Jesus means to follow him. Jesus has given you a picture 
of both what he has done to rescue you and a picture of what life in Christ is. Take up the towel of servanthood and follow Jesus.